Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So I've had a few people ask me about the first guy in that car. He lived, by the way. And so if you're here and think you've seen this before and you didn't wonder that, I don't know what that says about you, but dude flipped off somehow. He, he lived, um, which would not have shown you that video if he, if he didn't. Uh, before we get started today, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page when it comes to next week. Uh, next Sunday, March 31st, we're officially changing our service times to 9.30 and 11 a.m., And the reason why we are doing this is because we actually have a major imbalance between our first and second services. And so our hope is to make the 930 service a little bit more attractive and so that maybe some of you go to the 930 service to open up seats here at what will be the 11 a.m. And the reason why this matters is because there are 250,000 people in our county and only 18% of them would claim to follow Jesus. And so while it's great that this church is growing, while we love adding extra seats every week, like it's really exciting to see that happen, we recognize that we're barely scratching the surface. And so we want to balance out our services in order to fill up the 930 to create more space at the 11 a.m. And so we've been saying this the past few weeks, if you are someone that can go to either service, the 930-11, you like love to wake up early, you just happen to come to the second service, we're asking you to please consider going to the 930 Both services are exactly the same, except the 930 service has more parking spots up front. So if you're also like, I don't like walking very far, the 930 will be great for you. But please consider opening up a seat for someone else to come and experience the grace and truth of Jesus. Uh, On your seats when you came in, there are a few cards. Uh, The reason why we do that is for two reasons. One, so that you can remember that next week is the time when the services change. And so if you show up at 1030 next week, you'll be at the tail end of one. You'll just have to hang out with us for 30 minutes, and we're not fun, so don't do that. The second reason, though, is it's not just about moving service times or trying to get people earlier. It's also about inviting the people in our life to come and experience what God has to offer. And so you have multiple cards in that stack. And so the challenge is uh, don't just remind yourself that the times change, but also let's do what we can to fill up these seats as well. To start today, I want to ask you all a question. And so I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you or someone that's sitting around you and tell them the answer to this question. If you could attend the Olympics, winter or summer, and you could only attend one event, which one would it be? And I'll give you about 30 seconds. This is how you know the people you're sitting next to might be a little bit weird, right? Depending on how they answer. All right, so for me, uh, to be honest, if I could see one event, it would be curling. I don't know. Yes, thank you. There's like this weird cult following. None of us know how to play curling. You sweep ice, but it's awesome. Uh, I don't know why I love curling. When I was in college, uh, the Winter Olympics were on, and I would like sit in the cafeteria for hours and just watch curling. And I got like weirdly invested uh, in the sport. I also like to clean, so maybe that's a piece of it. I don't really know. But I think curling is mesmerizing. But there's actually another event that I'm really intrigued by, which is the 4x100 relay. Now listen, I'm not a runner. I hate running. I will run if I'm being chased or if I have to survive. But running for the sake of running, I just don't get it. 
That's why I'm here preaching today and not running at the Frederick Rescue Mission 10-miler that's happening right now. They're like, are you running that? I was like, no. Like, that is not, 10 miles, no way. Not gonna do that. Running doesn't make sense to me. I don't even think I'm built for running, really. But the four by 100 meter relay is fascinating, and I'll tell you why. It involves four 100 meter laps run by individual sprinters. And so it's a team event where run, one runner finishes their 100 meters and they hand off a baton to the next person so they can run their lap. And because it's so quick and because it's so fast, the handoffs have to be done perfectly in order to win. Now, you may know this, but the 4x100 has been dominated by the USA really since the beginning of the Olympics, but specifically since the 80s. In fact, both men's and women's teams have medaled in every single Olympics since 1984, with the exception of four times, one for the women and three for the men. And all four times, it was for the exact same reason. They dropped the baton. The only thing that has stopped our country from at least getting a bronze medal and probably gold is ourselves. And so our runners would run at a gold level, but they couldn't hand off the baton. They trained their whole, they trained their whole life. They were certainly fast enough. But because they couldn't hand the baton to the runner in front of them, everything they worked for didn't matter. They're immediately disqualified. Now, can you imagine anything more depressing than knowing you are fast enough to win the race, specifically at the Olympics, but not being able to pass it on? Today, we're closing out our four-week wisdom series called Guardrails by talking about the future. Today is all about this idea of passing it on, and here's why. The biggest impact you can make is the impact that can outlive you. I'm going to say that again. The biggest impact you can make is the impact that can outlive you. Surveys have recently shown that the number one desire of people today is that they want their lives to matter. And you know this. You feel that some of you actually believe this and you want your life to, make, to, to matter. You want to make an impact. A generation ago, people only cared about making money and enjoying themselves, but people have seen the emptiness of that. People have realized that that is a shallow way of living and it doesn't truly bring joy. So now what people want to do is they want to do something important with their lives. But here's the thing. It is great if we build something with our lives, but if it doesn't outlast us, did it really matter? If it doesn't outlast us, did we really make the difference that we wanted to? See, the biggest difference you can make is an impact that outlives you, an impact that goes beyond you. And so today I want to talk about impacting the next generation and there's a bunch of tension with this. And, and the biggest one is that we want to see an impact right now. Like we live in a culture where we want instant gratification. We want the impact to be seen immediately. And there's a tension with teaching. You're, you're teaching kids how to spell and how to do math and how to handle conflict, but you won't get to see them in a professional career 20 years down the road. That's the tension in coaching t-ball because you're trying to teach kids to run to first base and not third base and they're eating dandelions and playing in the dirt and one kid's just crying sitting in the middle of the field, but you don't get to see them enjoying high school baseball. That's the tension of parenting. It feels so draining day in and day out. And that's why I love what Sandra Stanley says when she says, the days are long, but the years are short. The end is going to be here before we know it, but when you're in it, it's a daily grind. And we feel that. And so today, if you want to make an impact, then you need to invest in the future. And here's the thing. I've spent way too much time with people who are older and way too much time at funerals and hospitals with people who are, ending the, are nearing the end of their life to ignore the blatant reality that when you die, the only thing you, that matters is how you impacted those who remain. And so I want to be up front, and we're in church, so I don't think this is going to come as a big surprise, but I need to state it. We believe the biggest impact you can make revolves around Jesus. 
We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that he died on a cross to pay for our sin and connect us back to God. And the deal on the table is that if you accept Jesus as your leader, leader, he will pay for your sin. He will wipe your slate clean, and that's called grace. And grace means that Jesus will give you true life. No matter how many times you've been divorced, no matter how many times you screamed at your kids this week, no matter how many times you pursued that destructive relationship, no matter how many times you let them down, no matter how many times you crashed your life, Jesus will give you a fresh start. And it doesn't matter if he's giving you a fresh start for the first time or the 10th time or the 100th time. That is the offer on the table, and it's called grace. Yes, it is too good to be true. Yes, it is hard to grasp, but yes, it is that good. And so if you haven't accepted that, that's really where all of this begins. That's the first step. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, then that's where this impacting the next generation really matters. If you want to make the biggest impact possible in your lifetime, it starts with you accepting the gift of grace and putting your faith in Jesus. That's step one. And if you've never done that, that's where you need to sit. You need to sit on that spot and you need to think about that spot and you need to really wrestle with that idea. And that's why we talk about this every single week. We want nothing more than for you to take that step. And so if that's where you want to begin, you need to check off the baptism box on your connection card or come find me after service. Let's have a conversation. But you cannot impact the next generation in a, true, in a true way that will actually outlive you if your faith isn't in Jesus. And the reason why we exist as a church, the reason why we individually follow Jesus is simple. We believe that Jesus is the only one that can offer true life. And so there's a lot of good that you can do for the next generation, right? We, and we know this. You can teach kids how to read and write and how to do math. We can teach them how to play sports and think critically and problem solve. But at the end of the day, the only thing that truly matters is pointing them to Jesus. Because Jesus gives them something that they cannot get anywhere else. And so we have to recognize that the next generation needs us. Now, just to be clear, when I say next generation, I'm talking about college and younger. It's actually Generation Z is what it's called today. And one article said this about Generation Z. Gen Z has been discipled by their smartphones, taught sex ed by Google, and conditioned to assume that because they believe something, that makes it true. Gen Z has no foundation. Only 34% of Generation Z believe that lying is morally wrong. 28% believe that there's no such thing as morality, and it all kind of depends on the situation that you're in. And 58% of Generation Z, which is described as the least Christian generation, believe that many religions can lead to eternal life just as much as Jesus can. In fact, I'm reminded of this often because on my way to dropping Elise off at school every day, I actually pass a church that is part of a mainline denomination that a decades ago was impacting millions in our country. But over time, they got away from scripture. And the reality is that means they got away from Jesus. And today, that denomination's dying out. And when I drive by this particular church on Sundays, if they have 10 cars in the parking lot, that's a good Sunday. And the church is dying. And listen, that's actually the reality of our nation. The church in general is dying. But it reminds me of what John Wesley said when he said this, if religion is not extended to the children, what will be the outcome? He's saying, if we do not pass on to the next generation, what will happen? And the sad reality is we know it's death. Death of ourselves, death of faith. To make it even more personal, as we move the service times back, this might seem small to you, but it isn't. This is a big deal because we are trying our best to create space for new people. We're trying to create space for growth. And this matters because we don't want to be in West Frederick Middle School forever. We love this school but our dream isn't to stay portable. Our dream isn't to stay here. 
And if we outgrow this space, we'll look for a new one. And my dream is that Collective will continue to grow and realistically continue to make an impact in this city. And my hope is that Collective will exist well beyond me and past the time when I step down as lead pastor one day. And I can't help but wonder when that time comes, what will people say about this church? Will they say, oh man, that church used to reach young people? Or will they say, you gotta check out that church because it's so alive? And so I believe that what we do with today's scripture will really influence what people say about the impact our church is having on the youngest generation 30 years from now. And for those of you who are in your 20s and thinking that this is, this is just for parents and that you should have skipped today, this is not just for parents. This is why we're not talking about making an impact on millennials because based on the breakdown, millennials are people between the ages of 24 and 37 years of age. I'm a millennial. We're adults. We get to vote. We are starting careers. We're starting families. We can have an impact on the next generation. In fact, if you are in your 20s, you probably have the most time and energy to be able to impact people in the next generation if you want to. And so I wanna go through a story today from a book of the Bible called Judges. And to set it up, here's some of the context. 3,500 years ago, the Hebrew people were slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. And so God told Moses to lead my people out of Egypt, and that's what he did. And so he led them out of Egypt, and he led them into the wilderness toward the promised land. The wilderness is kind of like the desert. And when Moses died, he actually passed on his leadership baton. He passed on the baton to Joshua. And Joshua then led the Israelites into the promised land that was occupied by enemies, and they began to drive them out. And that's where we're actually going to pick up the story today in the book of Judges. And this section is actually going to give us an overview of the entire book of Judges and Judges 2. And this is what it says. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. And so the first few verses we realize, okay, so Moses got it. He was in charge. He led them out. Then he handed it on to Joshua. And then Joshua eventually dies in Judges 2. And then we see what happens after him. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. So post Joshua, you see this faith in these people turning away from God. You see them losing their faith. They're losing the God who brought them out of slavery. They're already forgetting that that happened. They're turning away from him. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt they went after other gods, worshiping the gods of people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Now, let's pause there for a second. So Baal and Ashtoreth were pagan gods. Baal was male and Ashtoreth was female. And here's what you have to understand. This, worshiping other gods isn't like going to another church, right? It wasn't like they went to the church that was down the road a little bit or a little bit closer to the house, whatever it may be. Baal and Ashtoreth were fertility gods, like make the land fertile, but also make the people fertile. And so the way you worshiped fertility gods in ancient cultures was to practice fertility. So the way you worship Baal and Ashtoreth is you went to their place of worship and you had sex with the volunteers who served the pagan gods' place of worship. This is what the Israelites were doing. So it wasn't that they just stopped trusting God. It wasn't that they stopped going to church. They completely went in a different direction. And so this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. So meaning without God protecting them, it was inevitable that they would be defeated by the evil around them. 
And God told them that this would happen. God told them, if you turn away from me, like bad, I can protect you if you're with me, but if you turn away from me, bad things will happen. And they saw that. But then God gives them a solution in Judges 2.16. It says, then the Lord's, Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Now, when you read the word judges, don't think of somebody in a black robe, right? It's not Judge Judy. A judge in the Old Testament was a leader. It was someone who was raised up to lead the next generation back to God. Like you can think of Moses and Joshua as judges. They were, God put them in place. They trusted God. They led Israel in the right direction. And so when you read the book of Judges, you read all about these people who led Israel back to God. You read about Othniel, who was raised up and defeated the nation of Aram to lead the people back to God. You read about Gideon, who had 300 warriors with which he defeated an entire army of thousands in order to lead the people back to God. And in the book of Judges, you read about Samson. So even, even though Samson was a super messed up dude and continued to fall short over and over and over again, in the end, he defeated the enemy Philistines and he led the people back to God. Those were his judges. And so that's what this is about. And it continues in Judges 2. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. So God would send a leader to come and rescue them. But what would happen every single time is when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. And really, those two verses, verse 18 and verse 19, those two verses are the story of the book of Judges. A leader would be raised up, they would turn back to God, the leader would die, They'd sprint in the other direction. And as you read Judges, that's what happens over and over and over again. Before Jesus came, God had a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. But the story of Judges is that as long as they had a good judge, they would follow God and everything would be good for them. But when that person died, they would then follow evil and abandon God. But then God would raise up another judge and everything would be good and they'd turn back to him. But then that judge would die and everything again would go south. And you read it over and over and over again. So let me just give you what this book is all about in a nutshell, because everything that's written in the Bible before Jesus points to Jesus. So catch what's going on here. They had a leader who would rescue them, but when he or she died, they were out of luck and they would turn to evil again. Then another leader would be raised up, but they would also die and Israel again would turn toward evil. And so what is it saying? It's saying that they needed a leader. They needed a rescuer who death could not conquer who death could not defeat. And if only they had a rescuer who death could not overcome, they would be good with God forever. And so what is this whole book about? What is it pointing toward? It's pointing toward Jesus. The reason why we trust Jesus is because death could not defeat him. He died on a cross for our sin, but the reason we actually follow him is because he rose from the grave to prove his promises were true. He's our rescuer. He is the judge who came through where all the other judges failed. Jesus is the one who death could not defeat. He died in my place. That's why we talk about grace all the time. So where the other judges failed, Jesus came through. Their impact ended at death, but his lives on forever. And because Jesus came back to life and proved that he offers us true life, there's a burden on us to pass on our faith to the next generation. And because of that, I wanna give you two guardrails today that will help you make an impact that outlasts you, right? That's what matters the most. It has to outlast us. And so I'd encourage you to write these down. You can take pictures if you want. Guardrail number one, decide to impact the next generation. 
Now we said this over and over again in this series, nobody ever plans to crash their life. People crash their lives because they don't plan not to. But the interesting thing about today's topic is every other week in this series was about if you don't implement these guardrails, you will crash your life. But today is if you don't implement the guardrails we're talking about, a young person is going to crash their life and it's on us. And so this guardrail is put in place so that we can protect and lead other people. One of the fascinating things about the 4x100 relay that I found out when researching it was that for years, the runners didn't actually practice the handoff of the baton. The philosophy has changed recently because of the mishaps, but the philosophy used to be, we know we have the fastest athletes in the world, so let's focus on our strength and increasing our speed and make up the handoff as we go along. So they never practiced it until they started to fail. It was only after the baton dropped in multiple Olympics that they decided to change how they approached the race, change how they practice. They had to make a decision, and so do we. We need to decide that we are going to pass it on. And here's why this is a guardrail. This doesn't shock anybody. We are selfish, right? We know that. We have a tendency to only focus on ourselves or care about ourselves. We're selfish. That's really what sin is. It's us focusing on ourselves and putting us first and thinking we are the most important thing in this world. So we have to make an intentional decision to impact the next generation. It does not come naturally. It's not natural for any of us to want to give up our own selves, to give up our own time, to give up our own talents for students, for people that we, we won't see the impact for years, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 And I still know some of you are thinking that today is just for parents. And here's why it's not. Because you know parents who are only focused on themselves. And you know people who aren't parents who do a great job on focusing on others. Because focusing on yourself or deciding to impact the next generation has very little to do with whether or not you are a parent. You just have to make a decision. You have to decide and say that it's not about me, but I'm going to make an impact that outlasts me. Listen to the verse that sums up what we read today in Judges 2.18. We're going to read it again. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. But when that judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. And so what happened? The reality was there was a generation of people who decided not to pass it on. And so if you want to make a lasting impact, you need to impact the next generation. And that starts with a decision. You can't do this passively. You don't just end up with the opportunity to impact Generation Z or the generation that will come after that. You have a choice to make. We have some friends that that go to Collective and we hang out with them. And every time we're at their house, neighborhood kids are always running in and out. Like in and out of the front door, in and out of the side door. It's just constant. And they even keep a garage fridge stocked with ice cream for their own kids and their kids in the community. And the first time we hung out with them is a little bit overwhelming because it's like, do you know that child? Like, who is this kid? Like, they don't look like your kids. What are they doing? And the reason why they do this is because they know they've got about 15 or 20 kids who live in their court. And they know that those kids could hang out anywhere in their neighborhood if they wanted to. But they want to make their house the best place for them to be. And it is. Every time we're there, we see it. Every time we're there, there are kids coming in and out of the house because that is where they want to be. And the cool thing is some of their own kids have even invited those kids to church, and they were here. We had a bunch of them at first service. But what that family is deciding to do is they're deciding to make an impact. They're deciding that their house is the best place for those kids to be so that they can see grace, and they can see love, and they can see forgiveness through just opening up their doors. One way as a church that we want to make an impact is by creating space for middle schoolers and high schoolers to be an active part of this community. 
This is why we don't do separate church for sixth graders through 12th graders. We think that they should be in worshiping and serving with other people. In fact, data actually suggests that students who worship and serve next to adults have a better chance of keeping their faith when they head into adulthood. And that's what we want. That's what we want more than anything else for the students that are in this church is that at some point they graduate and maybe they leave Frederick, maybe they leave this church, but they know that they can have faith for themselves. That's how we want to impact the next generation. Parents, if you do have middle schoolers and high schoolers, this is why you should get your kids plugged into the youth collective. Last week, I preached a sermon about sex. And what they did in the youth collective last week, they talked about sex. There's not a better place for your sixth, or 12th grade, sixth through 12th graders to have that conversation than in a small group setting that's rooted in what the Bible teaches, surrounded by other young adults whose desire is to impact the next generation. There's not a better place for your students to be. But that's your choice. If you have middle schoolers, you have to choose to bring them there. You have to make that decision. And one of the problems that we face with all of this it kind of goes back to selfishness, but it's that we're picky. We say, God, I want you to use me in this way, right? We add that caveat. God, use me, but only like this. I want you to use me in front of people. I want you to use me in this time frame. I want you to use me, but only in this particular context. But when you read scripture, that's not what God does. He takes people who are willing. That's the most important thing. He takes people who are willing, and most of the time, he uses them in ways they didn't expect. He uses them in their weakness. He uses them in their pain. He uses them in their brokenness. But the main thing is they're willing. And so the question is, will you choose to be a person of influence? Card rule number two, make it explicit. And I'll explain this as I go. We're gonna jump back to verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. If you don't acknowledge or remember, you will go off a cliff, right? That's exactly what that says. If we don't take the time to remember, if we don't take the time to reflect, if we don't take the time to pass it on, you will go off a cliff. A generation of people will end up in a ditch. And so the question is, why wouldn't we remember? And it all comes down to the generation ahead. It's because the generation before didn't tell you what to remember, didn't show you what to remember, See, here's a byproduct of what we're talking about today. When you decide to make an impact and make it explicit, it keeps you out of trouble. And here's what I mean. Part of the reason why you don't do the things that God says will wreck your life is because you know they will wreck your life. So part of the reason why you don't get trashed or sleep around or go into debt frivolously is because you know those things will wreck you. You know they destroy. Maybe you've experienced that before or maybe you've seen it in someone else's life. Maybe you just feel it, but you know that they will wreck you. But part of the reason you don't do those things is because you are deciding to make an impact on other people. And that becomes part of your motivation. Because if I can pause, even if it's just for a moment, and realize that what I decide will impact others because they're watching me, because they're listening, because they're gonna ask me questions, or even scarier, they're gonna imitate how I live, that will force you to pause and really reflect on what you're doing and hopefully turn you to making the right decision. The thing that kept me out of trouble in high school and college most of the time wasn't people saying, don't do that. In fact, I tend to have an adverse reaction to that. I don't have trouble with authority. People say, don't do that. I'm like, okay, now I have to do that thing. And so for me, it wasn't someone telling me not to do it. It was, the rec it was me recognizing that as a young adult, the decisions that I made would matter. As an adult, I recognize the impact that I have goes well beyond me. 
You are a person of influence, whether you think you are or not. Your actions communicate something about God. Students are watching you, they're listening to you, and you are telling them a story. Dallas Willard is an author who several years ago wrote a story about a young boy who was in an art class drawing a picture. And he was drawing with a ton of energy, so much so it was actually distracting the kids around him. They're all focusing on him. Some kids actually got up out of their seat to see what is he drawing. And so at some point, the teacher got up and walked up to him and asked him what he was doing. And without stopping, he said that he was drawing God. And she said, you know that nobody knows what God looks like, right? And he looked up at her and said, they will when I'm done. And Willard's point was that how you live your life is drawing a picture to others of what God looks like. What you do, what you don't do, how you love, how you serve, they all communicate what you believe to be true on a deep soul level. So you need to be true to your convictions and have faith worth passing on. Now, here's why I call this guardrail, make it explicit. There's a book that's actually called The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. And the book is simply about the good news that Jesus brought to the earth. But the best part of the book isn't actually the main content. It's the conclusion of why he named the book Explicit Gospel. He said that in the context of where he's a pastor, which is the heart of Texas, everybody in his church grew up going to church. It's way different than here. He also realized that most of the church that, that he has grew up going to what's called a Bible-believing church. Yet many of the adults were placing their faith in Jesus for the first time at the church that he led. And so he tried to figure out why. Why are all these people coming to faith, even though they grew up in churches, even though they grew up in Bible-believing churches? And after a while, he put it together and realized that they grew up in a church that taught the implicit gospel. They grew up in a church that was just for church people. So it was assumed that everybody knew the deal. It was assumed that everybody knew about Jesus. It was assumed that everybody knew about the Bible. And because of that assumption that everybody knew kind of the big stuff, they focused on all the small things. And so Chandler said that we need an explicit gospel. And the word explicit simply means clearly stated because at the end of the day, that is the only thing that really matters. A gospel that is clear, good news that is clear. And so the question is, do you clearly communicate the gospel all the time? Specifically, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what you need to wrestle with. Do you clearly communicate the gospel all the time? And again, the gospel simply means good news. Do you clearly communicate the good news that there is a God who loves us, that he sent his son to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven, and that that is true for all people? Is it something you talk about? Is it something you live out? See, if you don't have a faith that comes up naturally in conversations or a faith that can be seen in how you love God and love people, what you're actually communicating is that you have a faith that needs to hide, or at least maybe you don't even have a faith at all. But at best, it ends up looking lukewarm because a lukewarm faith in one generation results in no faith in the next. And so we need to make it clear. We need to make it explicit. And here's a few ways you can do that. If you are a parent of young kids, Make your house the place where they want to hang out so kids can see a healthy marriage or a healthy family. They can see love. They can see a safe place. Make that, make that your home. If you're a teacher, spend time praying for your kids before the day begins and teach them grace and forgiveness through how you lead. Whether you have kids or not, you can volunteer here at this school because there are over 500 kids who are food insecure. 500 kids don't know where their next meal is gonna come from. Whether you have kids or not, that should break your heart. You can step up and serve here and help make a difference. 
You can coach a team. You can volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. You can join the team here and serve. We're always looking for people to help us create intentional environments in collective kids and in this gym so kids birth through 18 can bump into Jesus. And if none of those are up your alley, the best thing that you can do is start inviting your friends and family just to sit next to you. Because one of the best things you can do to impact the next generation is to introduce someone else, someone else's family, to the love that Jesus offers. And for me, I've shared my story a few times. This one's personal. My life and my family will never be the same because someone invited my family to church. He wasn't a coach. He wasn't a youth minister. We didn't really interact with him on Sunday mornings at church. He was a neighbor, and he invited us. And the trajectory of my entire family is different now because of that, because of a simple invitation. Because of that, I'm forever grateful for them. See, the Christian life is not a 100-meter race, but a 4 by 100 relay. Meaning if you do not pass it on correctly, you did not run the race the right way. If all you do is run and you can be the best runner in the world, but if you do not pass the baton of faith on, you did not achieve the goal for which you were placed on this earth. And yes, we need to tell our neighbors. And yes, we need to tell our coworkers. And yes, we need to tell our friends and family about the grace and truth of Jesus. But possibly, and I think likely, the greatest potential of impact lies in the next generation. It's so far beyond us. And the book of Judges makes it clear. What's standing between a generation that walks away from God and what's ultimately best for them or walks with God and experiences true life is us. We make the difference. We fill that gap. We pass it on. Listen to this verse again. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. God put people in place to bridge that gap. And so what impact will you leave behind? Is it one that dies with us? One that doesn't outlive us? One that people would never know once we are gone? Or one that lives on forever? So here's my point. God can use you. God can use you. You have talents and abilities, and you might not think you do, but if you are willing, God will put you in a place to make an impact, and he wants to do that. The only question is, will you decide to make an impact for the next, gen next generation by communicating the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in a clear way so that those who are younger than you can live on? Let God use you. Let's pray. God, thank you, um, ultimately, that it's, it's just not all about us. God, because when, it, when it's all about us and the burden's on us and we carry all the weight uh, of, of everything, we always fall short. We fail. So God, thank you that there are people in our life that have, that have passed on faith to us or maybe passed on an invitation, passed something onto us that got us to this place where we are today where we're seeking or maybe we're, we're moving forward in our faith and trying to raise our family that way. God, thank you that someone ahead of us pulled us that direction. But God, I pray that there are people in our life that we can bring with us. God, I, we know the church is dying. Um, God, we see it all the time. Um, God, I, I pray that it doesn't die with, with our generation. God, that we can pass it on. But God, ultimately, the thing that we're most thankful for is what we get to pass on. God, that we get to pass on forgiveness. We get to pass on hope. We get to pass on grace. God, we get to pass on things to the next generation that they can't get anywhere else. God, because it's only offered by you. God, help us live in that space. Help us feel that. Help us appreciate it and care for it so much that we're willing to hand it off to the generation behind us so that they can experience true life through you. 
God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.